And just before I jump off, guys, um, Av should be back on the 16th, so he should be back next Monday. With that, guys, take it away. Thanks, Ken, as always. Well, welcome to the show, Ben. i uh looking forward to catching up with you. It's been a minute. Um, please introduce yourself to the audience and uh, give us a little background on, on your incredible journey so far. Thanks, Leighton. Uh, first and foremost, thank you, as always, for having me on the show. Leighton and Ken, you two great, great friends. Really appreciate it. And Leighton, even more excited than usual to get to speak to you just because it's been so long, brother. It's been way too long. And you were one of my first mentors, one of the founders that got me started. Um, so my name is Benjamin Acadia of Acadia Farms Family, also known as Acadia Farms. We originally started as a CBD products company and have shifted over the number of years now to specifically services. We specialize in really sort of facility design from the ground floor up. Um, one of my specialties is really working in a synergistic manner with the architects and engineers to help the dream, the goal of the cultivator meet the reality of what limitations are and what requirements are. So I'm able to do floor plans all the way through finished product design with the clientele as well as their engineers and architects. The other side of that coin, so to speak, is once you have a facility that's properly designed or a facility that isn't properly designed that you have to try to work within the parameters of and the restrictions is cultivation management and advisory. So the other side of what we do is that we can not only help you design or retrofit the facility that you are working in or hoping to work in, but we can also help you to manage that facility utilizing SOPs, utilizing lean operations and methodologies to make you as efficient as possible and really try to help to trim the fat and make you be able to survive in a cutthroat industry in a really, really tough market in consolidating states. So the small part of what we do that's honestly the most important to me is the education aspect, getting to be a public speaker, getting to do things like this with people like yourself, um, getting to teach classes and do workshops. That's my favorite. Um, I love the plants very, very much, but I've really learned to love getting to see that spark in students' eyes and getting to see those aha moments and getting to, to culture and nurture the young minds and sometimes the older minds. I mean, I've had plenty of students that are older than me and they've taught me a lot too. Love it. Now, that was beautiful, but give me the background, dude, because your story of where you got <laughs> to this point is fucking beautiful. All right, so um, my background, I've got 17 plus years now of cultivation experience. I first started when I was 16 years old I grew up on a farm, um, grew up growing everything that you possibly could, fingers in the dirt, feet in the dirt always, but always had the mind in the books. Uh, I come from a family of high academics and professors, and they really burned into me at a young age um, to strive and drive for what you want to learn. And so I've always been very hungry for knowledge about cannabis, but never really saw it as an opportunity that could be a career for me. I always saw it as being uh, my super, super passionate hobby. And I originally went into emergency medicine, actually. I ended up leaving my nursing program to take care of my father when he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And my journey with him over the next four years using CBD, using THC, really changed my perspective on cannabis from being a recreational fun thing as a teenager to having real medicinal value and real uh, you know, life-changing potential. So when my father finally did pass away after four and a half years, though they had given us originally a diagnosis with three and a half months, and we were able to get four and a half years of extremely high quality life. And that was really what it was all about to me was the quality of life. It gave me my dad back. So I didn't want to go back down the path that I had been on. Um, I'd really excelled in Western medicine and I loved it, especially in emergency medicine. But I, I didn't want to go back into that field. And my brother, who was a doctor at that point for over 12 years, told me that I should follow another path, that I had all these other interests that I could pursue. And at that point, cannabis had just gone legal in Massachusetts. So it had just gone from this, you know, pipe dream, so to speak, into 
being a tangible reality that I, I could actually have a career in this, not be a criminal, uh, not, you know, have my entire family look at me like you're going from trying to be a doctor to, to teaching people how to grow. Okay. Um, a tractor. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we, uh, we took a big junk, a uh, large leap of feet, leap, leap of faith. And, um, I mean, honestly, my, my family was a big, big push of that. Um, but also going to the first regenerative cannabis conference, meeting you, Wendy Kornberg, meeting Kevin Jodry, getting to meet uh, Suzanne Wainwright and Josh Rutherford, like that really changed my life and changed my whole path. It gave me the first time in my life access to real scientific knowledge about cultivation and not bro science, not forums, not YouTube videos, but real tangible science, real people that had application experience that could teach me how to do things. And that really shifted my dynamic. I then decided that instead of being in nursing school, I was going to go to cannabis school and I was going to give the same level of dedication of 15 hours a day, seven days a week. And I just pursued every little piece of information that I could get my hands on. And luckily, like I said, I had amazing mentors like yourself that were willing to give me nuggets of gold and willing to give me roadmaps to knowledge that I could go and find and, you know, earn and learn. And that's what I did for the next five years. Um, and then that's really during that period of time was where my whole profession transitioned. We started our CBD products company. Uh, COVID really crushed us on that, unfortunately, but it, one door closes, another one opens. And, you know, the cannabis industry is one thing. It is about the art of the pivot. It is about never being beholden to just a single path and being able to flow, just like in nature, just like with microbiology. Things need to be in flow. Things need to be in concert. And uh, I was terrified, but opened myself to the concept of it. And... We went full services based. It went exclusively to facility design, man uh, um, management, advisory, and education. Uh, now here we are having had the business for six going into our seventh year, and it's growing exponentially. Um, for the first time, I'm considering putting together and building an entire team underneath me because my biggest bottleneck now I've found is myself and my knowledge that I have accumulated and earned that I now need to disseminate and, and give back to the community. And that's one of the reasons I'm really excited uh, this year. I'll be speaking at the Freedom Rally in Boston and getting to give back to my community more, getting back involved with the grassroots uh, part of it that I've really unfortunately left the past number of years because I was being pulled really into more like, I hate to use the term corporate cannabis, but I was working with really large projects um, that are run by really big money and they needed people that they could trust to be able to be put in charge of certain aspects of the projects. And Though I love that side of it, I love getting to educate and teach and help really drive the industry. I did really feel that I wanted to get back to my roots and back to the people that I love and the community that I need to give back to. Nice, beautiful story, dude. I'm so glad that you uh, took the time to share that because that was what always impressed me about you was that not only did you ask damn good questions, but you came from a place of a completely different entity, a completely different practice. Yeah. And, you know, that was one of the things that so impressed me about you was that you had all this incredible knowledge and you pivoted like a motherfucker and went the other way. And and that's that's rare in, in people that I meet. Um, like you said, most people are stuck in a path and most of them don't even like their path. And then, yeah. you know, here you get you get an, you inspired me to keep going and driving ahead. So <laughs> thanks, brother. Yeah, I want to, you know. Give respect where respect is due. But man, when I came down and met you at your house, well, that must have been like what was right after the yeah, five plus years ago, right after the that first conference. And uh, yeah, 
took me through the garden. We just sat there, just chopped it up on some really, really heavy concepts, details, and information. And it was, it was a, it was a great uh, experience for me as well. My friend. Me so, too, man. That was that was a uh, one of the pivotal days in my life for sure, and definitely one of the pivotal days in my career. Uh, Amanda, my fiance, she and I sat down after that when you left, and we were both just like, wow. Not only did Leighton Morrison come here, but he was impressed and intrigued and had questions and we had a phenomenal conversation. And it was uh, it was one of the first times that I felt, you know, really sure that I, I deserved a seat at the table, so to speak, because I've always been a, a humble person. I was raised to, you know, you know, respect the origins and uh, stay humble, always be a teacher. And I've always thought of myself as a student. But that was one of the first days that you were like, no, 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 you've got you got some nuggets to teach. You got some things there. And I like to think that I've chased down that path full fledged now. Oh, hell yeah, you have. Hell yeah, you have. So, let, so let's get into it, brother. So tell us about some of the most interesting projects you've been working on in the last four years or so. Yeah, um, let's see. So interesting from a biological perspective. Um, we've been doing some trials using natural farming and trying to quantify some of the science behind natural farming, which is one of the people that I met, uh, Chris Trump, at your at the first uh, conference, and I've now followed him completely. I've gone through two of his full training courses, uh, a couple months now of work with him. Really loved it. Got to be a certified level two soil smith and been very passionate about that. I don't get to apply it as much as I would like in my day-to-day -day practices with most facilities simply because the, the market's not there yet. The education's not there yet. It's not just a tool that I would feel comfortable putting into the hands of any cultivator and just saying, here, run with it. Um, especially not when you're dealing with, you know, potentials of millions of dollars on the line. I mean, one of the facilities I'm working with right now, each room is approximately half a million dollars. And there's six rooms that are six to eight rooms coming down on a cycle. So it's, it's tough in situations like that to be able to integrate new tech like that. But there is a facility that I'm working with right now that's in final stages of development that is going to be alluvial beds that are going to be layered based off of the methods you taught me. They are going to be three foot deep living soil on top of rolling racks. So we're sort of integrating the old school and the new school. We're trying to go with as living biology as possible, as natural of an environment for the roots as possible, but at the same time, utilizing the maximization of floor space in a small facility, 5,000 square foot facility. And we're trying to crush half of that into canopy space. Now there's a ton of ancillary spaces that need to go into a facility to make it functional. You can't just have grow rooms and bedrooms. You need a lot more than just that. So one of the ways that we're able to try to maximize potential in the footprint using things like rolling racks, but we had to work with a company to make designed rolling racks specifically capable of handling that weight load. Cause when you're looking at a, you know, a standard alluvial layer bed, that's a four by four or let's say a four by eight. Cause that's standard metric depending on the fill volumes and quantities and depth, whether it's three or four feet, you're looking at four to 6,000 pounds per four by eight, which is a substantial amount of weight that then you need to be able to put on a frame. And now you need that frame to also be on casters that aren't going to get crushed. So this facility is one of the first ones where we're going to be doing full living soil beds with the alluvial layers. We're going to be running blue mats irrigation systems along with overhead liquid IMO applications, as well as overhead uh, foliars. And those are all going to be on automated systems to again, minimize, operations expenses as far as labor because that's always our biggest expense and anything that we can remove the farmer's tasks from is good because that allows us to put that farmer in charge of the plants in a more personal manner instead of doing a foliar i want you scouting instead of doing a soil drench i want you oh sorry just got flash flood warnings i got um turn that down sorry 
So instead of having the hardware have to be spending so much time on these, to some extent, menial tasks, we want them to be able to really drive their energy into paying attention to their soil biology, paying attention to plant health, paying attention to phenotypic expressions and chemotypic expressions, paying attention to scouting. And I'm really excited that this facility is going to be using the most active biology that I've seen. It's going to be true natural farming from start to finish. We're going to be at IMO four and five in the soil. We're going to be doing liquid IMO foliar applications as well as soil drenches. And I'm really excited to see what that can do inside of a highly titrated environmentally controlled facility where we're using um, HVACD systems, so DX units for the HVAC, and dehumidification is integrated directly into that as well as CO2 amplification. So we have all of the air handling, moisture in the air as well as CO2 in the air, all handled by the exact same system, monitored by the exact same system. That also gives me 30 second interval feedbacks. So I can actually watch my plant respiration and transpirations. I can watch my moisture removal from the room by the minute. And then I can take all of that combine that data with what I know I'm putting into the room and see how that biology is really actually affecting things and see how a liquid IMO soil drench causes us to have, let's say, massive CO2 spikes when we go to lights off, larger than you would normally expect from the respiration of the soil. And now that starts to give us more data. And the more data we have, the more we can start to see patterns that we wouldn't necessarily have seen. It's one of the things you taught me was that the first thing that you ever need to do whenever you have a question is gather data. Even if you don't know if that data is pertinent necessarily to what it is you're looking for, gather as many data points as you can, overlay them, and start looking for trends. Start looking for things that might not correlate when you just look at this piece of data and this piece of data, but you look at them over each other or even with a third piece of data, and all of a sudden you start to see correlations of, let's say, plant transpiration with moisture removal, with vapor pressure deficit, with biology. And all of a sudden you start to see that there's these matrices and there's these crossover points, and you're like, oh. So I get the maximum effect from my moisture when my biology is at this level, this long after a treatment with this level of heat and relative humidity in the room and intensity of, of lights on the canopy. And you can start to see these really cool patterns. And to be able to really gain that information, you need a facility that's geared towards it to some extent. You need to have, it's like when you do scientific experimentation, you don't just usually throw it out into the middle of the wilderness. You go into an extremely environmentally titrated system where you can control every factor so you can see the influences that each one of those factors actually has when you play with them. So that's, that's one of the ones that I'm most interested about right now, biologically speaking, is that we'll actually be able to start gaining quantifiable data, not really at user, uh, university research level, but at, at low level clinical, I would say, level ability of, of gated data gathering and hopefully at that point then begin to do some application of it. Are you going to be using any of the fish food products? I will be using some in trial. Yes, absolutely. Along with the microbiometer to be able to do um, bacterial and fungal really quick baseline gut shots of where we are in our masses after, before, and during treatments. Um, but yeah, no, we've got three rooms that we're going to be running that are all identical in parameters, soil and canopy. And also we've done a, a lot to put into putting a shell within a shell within a shell. So minimizing external environmental factors of being in New England, cold winters, hot and humid summers, you don't just insulate the exterior of the building and then build a box within that because then you get a thermal barrier between those two. So then you're actually going to insulate the building. We're going to then insulate a secondary pocket within that building and then build our rooms and have those insulated. So we have three barriers of removal from the external environment. And that'll allow us to really have solid data. And then I can treat each one of those rooms with slightly different products. And we're going to be able to start to see some some hopefully really cool data come out of there. 
Did you, uh, have you done any um, qualitative biology with any of the um, natural farming tools? So I only just got um, the microbiometer actually at last year's organic cultivators conference. I picked one up because they had come to the conference and I had it right in front of me and you can't show me a shiny, amazing scientific tool. So, so take my money. And, All right. Um, so one, so one, warning. Yeah, one warning on that biometer. Yep. You have to be really careful to understand that humic acid skews Absolutely. the Absolutely. Yeah. That was one of the conversations that I had with them at the, um, actually at the, uh, the conference, because I brought my soil in from my beds, the beds that you had seen actually that I built the year after I met you. Um, I brought that soil in and we actually had some really interesting findings on a different biological perspective from that, that we'll touch back on, but, uh, nematophagic and chitinophagic, um, fungi. But yeah, we did talk about, cause my soil is very, very rich in humic. Um, both from just having direct humic acid additives, as well as just the biological processes of breaking things down. So I did notice, and she straight up said when she first saw the coloration of my soil sample, she was like, this may be slightly skewed and <laughs> a couple of iterations of it. And she was able to say, yep, here's the skew. And then we were able to sort of like adult, I'm sorry, not adult adopt for the skew, so to speak. So like yep. compensate for the discrepancy. And then we were able to start getting more and more accurate, but it did take a number of iterations um quite a few test strips and samples but we did start to get some some more solid data i mean it's obviously still not i wouldn't call it an analytical tool i would hesitate to even call it a quantitative tool or qualitative but it is it's better than being blind oh hell yeah uh, you know what i mean so it, it's it still needs to come a long way and they're even very very open and honest about that that it's you know it's a work in progress but part of the way that we improve the product is by doing inaccurate science and slowly dialing it in and titrating it and figuring out, okay, this is working, this isn't working and figuring our way along the scientific process till we get to a more refined product. So I'm more than happy to help them do that because I thoroughly believe in A, the, the mission that they have, but B, just, I want a product like that, that I'll be able to get a really solid quantitative analysis of my microbial content as a whole, and then also fungal to bacterial content within a soil mass that I can do in field or in facility. That's, that's invaluable to me. So I would absolutely love to see that get flushed out. Well, you know, I'm so glad that they did pay attention to that because, you know, I started working with Judy when she first had the first. I should have known that you were. <laughs> yeah. Down at Rodale. Um, you know, that, that's a whole nother story that I won't get into. But, you know, on a number of occasions, I kept telling Judy, look, you've got to deal with the humic acid. You've got to either remove it or come up with another primer or something because I can't use the tool. I have to use the microscope. Yeah. That's the only way I can tell what the hell's going on. And so, you know, I just kept banging that into her head. She did have a, like three more. Uh, iterations of the original test that were getting better and better as she went along. And then unfortunately she passed and I, is her daughter the one running it now? Uh, you, you probably didn't speak out of turn. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, at one point I was in communication with her daughter after she passed and I told her, I said, look, just make sure you're not promising something that that machine doesn't deliver. You just, yeah. Yeah. Like I said, they've been they've been really great about it. Um, constantly sending me out new information. So I've been in contact with Marissa. Okay, I believe that is her daughter. Yeah, Marissa Flannery. Yep. 
Yep. So that's yeah. that's fantastic. That's great. Yeah, I've been in contact with her. Um, she was phenomenal. I believe she was the one that actually I spent most time talking with, and she's actually sent me out updated testing um, FAQs, parameters, SOPs to keep me in the loop. And it's been really phenomenal. They've had at least another, uh, I believe, algorithmic iteration since the the meeting even. Fantastic. Now, um, are you aware of the Soil Food Web uh, lab schools that are opening up? No. Oh, dude, this is going to be a gold mine because now you can send out samples that get um, oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. I did hear about this. When you said lab schools, I was thinking like I can go to a local school near me and get oh, trained no. in proper lab analysis. I was like, yes, I thank you. Please sign me up. <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know me and knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Find so, things that give me knowledge and not, not let it. <laughs> Unfortunately, you do not have time to go through soil food web school. But the, the labs that are opening up. Um, are pretty damn good. I, I awesome. live with a few of them now and the results are comparable. So, mm -hmm. you know, the human eye factor or the human emotion factor seems to oh, have. Yeah. I mean, but that's any analytical lab. We deal with that in the cannabis industry when it comes to testing even. There's yeah. every lab is different. Soil samples, cannabis samples, it doesn't matter. There's always SMPs, minor discrepancies. Yeah. Yep. Always minor discrepancy. That's why I always recommend you tick, pick one lab that you like, that you work well with and stay with them. Because even if they are minorly inaccurate, a consistency of inaccuracy is still accurate as long as you account for that inconsistency, that, that one little bit. So you can get reasonably accurate, repeatable data if you know that, well, it is consistently a 0.1 off or a consistently a 0.23 off. Well, then you just account for that whenever you get your stat back. But if you're going from lab to lab, then you have no idea. Yeah, and the way to start that is to send them three identical samples. And now you have a baseline of understanding of where the outlying two components are, and then you either adjust to average or you adjust to extremes. But either way, you, you, you've now got a, a baseline to start working from. So, yep, remove your outliers, just like any data set. Data in threes is minimum. Yep. Um, so that's all great. So That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm really happy to hear about this new uh, this new facility that you're working on. I mean, to have the ability to have one as a control and two different test plots speeds up the knowledge game by you know, exponentially, especially yeah, really with the modern equipment that you have. So between the monitoring and the and the actual, you know, yep. And we also put in like multi-stage monitoring. So again, you know me; I'm always about data. If I can get data from more than one source, provided they are all quality, then I want that. So we're getting data from our environmentals, from the control units themselves, from within the room, and then from within the units themselves and their ducting. We're going to be monitoring water removal from the system itself, but also monitoring water input through the um, blue mat system. So we'll have an active in and an active out, and then we'll know what our latent held in room and soil moisture is. We're going to be using analog meters known as the aerometers in all of the beds to give us an analog readout that tells us an actual KPA or kilopascals. It's a measurement of pressure and vacuum. Um, that'll give us an actual tangible analog readout because though I love digital, technology is amazing. It can do insane things for us. It's not perfect and neither is analog, but if an analog is out of whack, I'm much more liable to catch it on a pass by than a digital sensor. I can look at an aerometer and look at a bed and stick my finger in the soil and go, okay, that's like a 12 or a 15 KPA. 
that's on. It says it's between. Okay, perfect. It's within reason. But I could also walk by it, stick my finger, and be like, that's dripping wet. And it says that it's at a KPA of 25. That's clearly wrong. But if I walk by a little sensor box, I just go, blink in light and keep walking. <laughs> now, hopefully, if you've got a really good sensor, maybe it's like a red blinking light or a green blinking light. But unfortunately, we're, we're not always there with our sensor technology. And most sensors um, are just hardwired and read right back to a central control unit. And then you have to chase down, is it a hardwire issue? Is it a software issue? Is it an integration issue? Where with analog, it is what it is. And as long as I know that that aerometer is calibrated properly, which I can do with three pumps in about 45 seconds with a vacuum pump, I can literally be on site and see the aerometer, calibrate it, check it, be like, okay, no, I know that's good. Um, so I always like analog checks for my digital collection. Digital collection is easiest the way to go, but analog checks and back safeties. Love it, love it. Are you doing multi-depth aerometers? Yes. Nice. Six and nines. You're the man, dude. You're the man. Six and nines, low tensiometer because we're running in soilless media. Um, so we have to run the LT versions versus the standard, you know, field soil versions. Um, simply because the KPA differences are so different and with the accuracies that I want need to be in a tighter range. So in a field crop, you know, we're beholden to rain and runoff and drainage and all of these other things that we can't control. So the tensiometer readings usually run much, much drier um, in that soil structure. You're able to run with the microbiology, the root systems and all of that. And the, simply the, the soil texture itself, you're able to run much drier systems than you do in a soilless media. So uh, standard aerometer runs, I believe, to like 100 kPa, uh, 0 to 100. And my LT sensors run from 0 to, I think, 40, 40 or 45. Yeah, they're small. Wait. 40. <laughs> <laughs> so are you, are you going to sink one down? Are you going to sink one down into the A horizon? Uh, if I can get one that deep, this particular facility, we're going to be running three feet deep. So I'm going to have to come up with some way of getting all the way down because it's, I don't it's have called, a it's, it's called an It's called an irrigation box. So look into irrigation. It's just a little tube. You pop the lid off and you can see down 12 inches to where the meter is. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm just going to build an, an, an enclosed chamber, basically like a PVC pipe that's going to run down to that level. And it just keeps the media away from the depth. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Well, I mean, I plan on having you out to this facility anyway. <laughs> in mind with a lot of the research and science that we've talked about. So there's no way that I'm not getting you out here once we get things open. <laughs> uh, another another thing that's that became uh, very aware to me um, is a better media for the low tension uh, aerometer to pick up true moisture value. And that's something I worked with Alex on um, because he called me because he could not find any meters that would accurately measure, uh, you know, for these um, low tension soils. So I told him, I said, all you got to do is, you know, take the aerometer or any other meter that you have qualified because he, he spent, you know, as much as three, four hundred dollars on a little friggin meter and it still was inaccurate. And, and in the, the ones he found. The cheapest ones that were the most accurate were like $5 a piece at Radio Shack. But even then, it was, <laughs> even then they were still off. So I told them, I said, all you got to do is take silt and clay, make a slurry, coat the whole thing, and then wrap burlap around it so that there's no way water can pull those, those uh, physical elements off of it. 
-hmm. and man, he got he got solid readings, uh, both instrumental and and through the analog. So that was a that was a good learning lesson. That that's well, another. I mean, there's, there's one thing that I have taken away from the plethora of nuggets of gold that you have given me of education. It is that silt and clay can solve a lot. And it doesn't take much. Just a little silt and clay does wonders. <laughs> and everybody laughed at me. <laughs> well, we're only crazy until we're right. <laughs> All right. So. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to, going back to the microbiology really quick. So yeah. one of the things that we realized, um, we were doing analysis of some IMO and some soil that I had had. Uh, the IMO was one that I made at a client's farm in upstate New York. And then I had a second student of Chris's who had also gone up there full-fledged level two. Um, and he made a second batch of IMO with them. So same environments, somewhat same starting materials. But then I had brought mine back down here, integrated it into my soil. And what we found was a really interesting differentiation is that the IMO that was up in New York was uh, nematophagia. So we found nematodes very like, clear as day. Actually, I have photos um, that I can send you. We got them on scopes from NOFA um, with Dr. James White there at the conference, and we did identification. And we were looking at it, and we found nematodes, full-formed nematode bodies that had expressions of fungal bodies coming out of them. And every single one of them that we found was tip to head. So tip of the tail to the head had a full infe infection all the way through it. They had a expression of a fruiting body out the tail and then a large expression of fruiting body that exploded out of where the cranium would be or the, the head. Um, and every one of them expressed the same sort of tail to tip with the explosion at the head. It almost reminded me of um, like cordyceps. And I mean, it's clearly fungal body. And we had just hundreds, hundreds of dead nematodes with this expression in their bodies. Then we looked at my soil and we were curious. We're like, well, are we going to still see nematophagic expression or is it going to have been diluted down and beat out by other microbiology? Because I am taking it, you know, seven hours roughly south. Um, so hundreds of miles away and different atmosphere, different elevations. They were way up in the mountains. I'm down low near sea level. So I wasn't sure quite how things would play out. Though I do remember from the biology classes that I'd had with you that microbiology can transfer from higher altitude to lower altitudes because it's easier to basically, it's easier to exist at lower pressure than at higher. So if you can thrive up here, you can survive down here, no problem. So I was hopeful that it would transition. And what we ended up finding was that not only did I have nematophagic activity, but I also had chitinophagic. So we had hard-bodied chitinous insects, um, microbial sized, that were, again, butt to brain, full infestation or full infection with fruiting bodies and an explosion specifically out of the cranium with these large twisting bodies that came out. And again, there was just hundreds of both nematodes and chitinophaged, uh, chitinous bodied insects that were just being devoured by this fungi. And then we started looking a little bit deeper and um, the head of uh, NOFA's microscopy division actually ended up coming to me and he's like, you know, this is so effectively nematophagic and chitinophagic that you could effectively use this as a treatment oh, for, yeah. for non-beneficial nematodes, for pestilent nematodes and pestilent chitinous bodied insects that are soil dwelling. And it's like, wow. So like the microbiology of the environment created a solution to an infestation problem that we have to treat with either pesticides or other biological entities that we have to buy. And we were able to uh, obtain it through 
natural captures of indigenous microorganisms, and then cultivation in an environment that was rich in these food sources. Amazing, dude. So, Amazing. so you know, that's like <clears throat> the first level of um, what I want to call biological controls that yeah. the potato industry would kill for. Yeah. Because so they don't want any good guys. They're all root feeders. And so you wouldn't be uh, drastically affecting the good beneficial side of that spectrum. No. Uh, that's the only thing that's concerning is I'm sure you were losing the good guys as well as the bad guys. But hey, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not confident that it's a, a selective fun guy. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not, but that's okay. That's nature. Nature does its thing. So, but to have a tool like that is, you know, very, very impressive. And uh, it's, it's a really, really cool tool. And as soon as we heard it, my, like, my brain just went, Layton, I got to tell Layton. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well it's very very interesting and then we look at and i look back at my notes and my records of my outdoor garden and since introduction i have had absolutely zero signs of any nematode issues and i have had no hard body insects no chitinous issues in my soil dwelling insects um really we've had press suppress pest suppression across the board um despite the fact that we've been opening up a large amount of new woodland area and forest area and greenland area around the garden which almost always increases populations of pests. Uh, we've been really lucky thus far the past three years, we've had nothing. And the past two years since introduction of this, we've had absolutely, absolutely nothing. It's been really, really interesting. Have you treated it with any other products like fish brew or was it just the IMO? Um, I haven't done any fish brew treatments in these beds. I've used it in some of the containers that I have. I haven't used any other biological amendments other than the IMO for two years, except for in one bed, I did do a Bavaria Bassiana um, because I wanted to trial out a product that I had heard really good things about. Um, you know, Suzanne, and it's yeah. very hard to earn her praises. Uh, so whenever she sends anything to me that is like, hey, here's a product you might want to look at, I immediately give it some attention and check it out. Um, and I wanted to do in soil because I mean, it's one thing to just test the product for a third party and send out the sample of that and be like, okay, how many spores are actually in this versus mm -hmm. what they're claiming? But then it's also like, well, how virulent are those spores? How, how aggressive, how vibrant is their growth? How well are they going to maintain in my systems? So I decided I wanted to do a test bed where we did an inoculation and then we sent out soil sampling later on to see actually how much held over. And then we're going to do a follow-up soil sampling in the spring to see how much overwintered. Nice, nice. So that's ongoing now then. Yeah. Yeah. Most of my experiments are ongoing because as soon as I get one piece of data, I'm like, okay, well, tweet. Next piece. Tweet. Like, <laughs> I think of experiments and like beds, especially um, as like a safe. And I feel like I'm the person that's got their ear to the safe. And I'm just like, click, 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 tick. Oh, that was it. <laughs> oh, look at we got. <laughs> click, 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 tick. Oh, that was it. And then eventually after enough of those, you get to go click. Oh, man. Look what I found. <laughs> <laughs> fucking love it dude love it um so a couple of interesting uh things that you may be able to benefit from um, sure. doing some work with this company called ecosphere sciences um we're presently just got our first data set back from a company called biomakers so biomakers actually has data on IMOs from upstate New York of all places. And I wonder if it's my same people there. 
It very well could be. So Craig uh, Trester, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Yep. Uh, he's 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 helping me lead the the charge on this. Uh, we, we call it the M4. So from macro to micro to molecule to metabol metabolics. I like. And we've already got metabolic data on the on this Muncher juice. Uh, and again, this is just dude. Oh, this is the makers of Muncher juice. I heard you speaking about this on a podcast a little while ago, and you were blown away by the efficacy. Oh my god, dude! And and I told him, I said we went all the way through chemistry, we went all the way through biology. I go, but in order for me to tell you anything more, we got to go down to the next level and get into the molecules and the metabolites because they're the ones that are driving some of these hormonal responses folding these proteins in different ways yeah so, oh, i already so got we, it pulled up i got it in front of me right now <laughs> so you may actually be able to piggyback on our work so you'll get the super discount you won't get slammed the testing is not cheap but the more data points that we acquire teaches all of us. Yeah. This, it gives us those overlays that you were talking yeah, no, You need to build the structure. You need to build the, build the plot or the, yeah. the data plots before you can start to graph it. Yeah, exactly. no, absolutely. Let's get in contact off air. I want to, I would absolutely love to be part of this. So where in upstate New York were you? Skinny Atlas area, Finger Lakes. Finger Lakes. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure where his place is. He is presently like kind of, camping out up there um, while he's doing all these other projects. He's teaching, he's doing a, a, a mycology online course, which might be beneficial for you as well. Um, and you can probably go up there. Just send me all the education, every book, all the knowledge is just throw it at me. All right. I'll, I'll connect you guys. Uh, definitely, man, definitely. Yeah, the, the contact I have up there is um, a client of mine at Taproot Fields. And then they were working with a friend of ours, an associate and fellow soil smith, uh, Aaron. Okay. And, and, and Craig is also uh, very much into uh, natural farming. He's taken. Yeah, I followed him for a while. I've never met him, though. Did you go to the course that we did at Harvey's Farm? In uh, Acres. Okay, no, we did one at uh, at uh, Harvey Hubble's. Harvey farm. Hubble's, yeah. Okay, you were there. in Connecticut. That was the first one you guys ever did out on the East Coast, and I was there. Yeah, That's yeah. So Craig cool. was there at that he one. He was there. Oh, yeah. okay. Um. So I guess so I did meet him then. You very well may have. He he was one of the people that came up to me and was like shook my hand and was like, "We need to talk." And and I was trying to I scoot I remember out. Now, yes, the mycologist. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Small world, funny things. Man, it feels like a, a lifetime ago when I was there. All right. I actually heard from Harvey not too long ago. He was thinking about uh, doing a class out there. Nice. I just never, I can't get away. My schedule is pretty booked these days, which is nice. So uh, I've got, I've got a whole week I took off. It was phenomenal. It was so nice. Went to the beach. Oh, good for well, you. You, you know, engage. So we want to make sure that we congratulate you on your fresh engagement. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ken. I appreciate it. Yeah, we took um, we took the week off for a little vacation at the summer house for our engagement. It was nice. Nice, nice. Yeah. So I I didn't realize that it, this engagement was brand new. I kind of figured it was. Uh, let's see. What's today? Monday. Yeah, it's about a week. <laughs> the major congratulations, my friend. Thank you kindly. Major. We appreciate it. Amanda sends her love. Um, 
if there's any pictures you want to share with Ken, feel yeah, free. I've got, them, I've got them on my phone, so I'd have to figure out how I can get them uploaded. I don't yet think I have them in my Google Drive for my microscopy stuff, but I may. So I can search really quick. Yeah, that would be awesome. Just text them to me. Just text them to me. I'll download them on my end and bring them up. Thank you, Ken. That might be really fun to see those. Uh, yeah, you know, absolutely. Nematodes and, and <clears throat> I just got a new phone, so I'll have to make sure that I can actually get it. And it's so funny that you talk about that because that was one of the next steps in, in biomakers is to do a little bit more understanding on some of the bacteria that turn chitin into chitinase. So yeah. dude, this, this is getting really deep because we literally, once we identify the DNA, we can backtrack to all the papers on the internet that have ever been published through this, uh, what's called a tube. And the tube, you put all the data into the tube and then you can basically through um, another platform like uh, AI, like chat uh, GPT, you yep. can then start dialoguing with that data and saying, okay, um, how many, what percentage of these species are um, this form of bacteria? And then, then you take that data, punch it into the, uh, back into another tube, and basically it scrubs the, the whole internet for anything related to that. So you can literally determine beyond a shadow of a doubt, because this is all, this isn't, this isn't like AI, this is AI pulling information out of the friggin' ivory towers, which is yeah. just fucking amazing. And then you can have all these references back to say, okay, we know that this bacteria usually is in association with these other bacteria. Do we have them? Okay, we do have them, or oh, we don't have them. But it just gives you this like uh, flow chart to really pull out shit that, that I don't think mankind has ever been able to do yet without yep. urging these technologies. And we're basically right at the fucking forefront, dude, with, with biomakers and Tina and Jason and Craig. Um, they are in that bioinformatics world. So they have the tools and the technologies between the three of them to cross pollinate into this basically tool that gives us this unbelievable data that we can use to steer shit to. We've never been able to steer biologically. We've basically only been able to say, hey, diversity, diversity, diversity. Let them, let them figure the fuck out. Let them figure it out of the soil, right? Yeah, the shotgun approach and, and hope that balance kicks itself in. Right, which it will eventually, but imagine to be able to dial that into it. level direct it guide it oh man yeah it's exciting times it really is as crazy as the world is out there uh, all right good news i found them oh, nice nice all right i'm gonna be sending them over to ken right now sweet yeah it was ruben um from nofa that was the one that actually gets the credit for having taken these photos um and they are from my soil and <coughs> No dead air, Layton. Come on, come on. Oh, okay. you want me to rant? I was—I don't want to talk because I want Ben to concentrate. I don't want to no, push. No, sorry. It. I was just sending these over. So, what I'm really excited about is that this would, these photos will give you guys a great 
multiple pictures that show individual specimens as well as multiple specimens and both nematodes and chitinous insects. We were not able to identify the chitinous insects as they were too far decomposed, so to speak. And, and they were at this point translucent in body um, with very minimal defining characteristics beyond you can see articulating legs. Um, you can see the abdomen and thoraxes on some of them. You can see the heads, but nothing that I was able to personally actually be able to glean anything from Though I'm certainly not a soil specialist as far as identification of microbiology to that extent. But I'll be very interested and excited to show you these. Yeah, and, and that could perhaps be the first sample that you send out to biomakers. I would like to be. Yeah, right? I've got bags in the basement. Love it. Fucking love it. And you know, it, it, I, always, I always try to keep a sample isolated by itself um, and not blend everything into the soil because I didn't know how it could adulterate or augment it. So yep. I kept single gallon sources of each of them individually that are kept alive. And then we did the inoculations into the beds as well. Fantastic. Um, so what, what else, what else are you working on? So aside from that, um, I've been doing work with a facility. So this is sort of like the opposite side. We've been talking about the beneficial microbiology. Um, I have had the past eight months or so that I've been working with a facility that I have been chasing down ghosts in the machine of microbacteria in irrigation systems. And this facility had just, uh, had been built they hadn't done a proper job of the design um, i know i always preach design 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 but it's just because so many of these problems can be avoided in an earlier stage and cost you 10 x's less um so this facility was designed they had 600 foot runs at their longest of two inch or three inch i don't remember i think it was two inch pvc piping as their main feed line so it went from their furt room up and then all the way down these corridors and split into different rooms along the corridors. Now, it sounds like a great idea. Um, there was a handful of problems. One, they were not insulated. They were not jacketed pipes. And they're running them through 75 to 85 degree corridors and rooms. So microbiology likes heat. It likes aqueous solutions. And it likes to be in dark places. So you've got a pipe filled with warm solution running through warm rooms that is filled with nutrients. Um, they that doesn't sound like a problem. No, 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 no. They built uh, quite a biofilm. There was quite a skeleton inside of the pipes. Um, now, they weren't totally ignorant. They knew that they had to, you know, try to do something to clean their pipes out. Now, when they had designed them again, they didn't design these pipes with inlet points. So they didn't actually have before angled breaks. You're supposed to have a little wine notch that comes off with a plug. So that you can get in there with a mechanical cleaner like a scrubber and get past that bend um so we had to put those in and then mechanically clean every single run as that room went down for cycle but the initial issues that we were chasing what led me to finding that it was this was that we had rooms that were exhibiting nutrient deficiencies like i've never seen before i mean straight up technicolor rainbow of rooms they had neon pinks neon oranges and yellows and plants would go in healthy um from veg and as soon as they were a week to two weeks into flower you started seeing stressors by the time they were about four or five weeks and flower set was really starting to come in and metabolism was kicking way up you just saw these plants start cannibalizing themselves and just turning all sorts of funky colors we had red stems to the point where they looked like they were like blood red and the nutrient regimen was solid they were feeding properly. I mean, a little bit 
out of whack, but nothing that should be causing, you know, problems like this. So what we ended up finding was that we were also getting, even just with plain water, from fert room to plant room, we were getting an over 1.3 pH drift. Wow. Just running through the pipes. Um, we then had plants in almost every room that were showing pythium, and we had fusarium, and we had crown rot. Of course. And <laughs> we had conditions. plethora, plethora of, of, of uh, waterborne, soilborne diseases. And that's what led me to being like, okay, well, we're seeing augmentation of solution from one end to the other. So there's a problem there. There's something happening in transit that is causing this shift in pH. Then that led us to, well, when was the last time that the pipes were cleaned? It was two plus years ago. So by the time we actually got scoping, all right, excellent, cool. So by the time we actually got scoping on the, the pipes, we, we, they'd been running sanitizer through the pipes between every run. Um, hoping that enzymatics and stuff like that would be able to break it down, but it just, it wasn't. So we had to go through and do mechanical application of irrigation, really break it up, do a sanitizer, do an enzymatic, and then rescope it, and it was clear. Wow, what a so, lot of work. Yeah, it was a lot of work. It took months to track down when we thought we were looking at nutritional deficiencies, and in all actuality, we were looking at essentially microbial pollution. Yeah, biofilm. Yep. So here's a great example. Um, it loses a little bit of clarity, but it's still pretty, pretty clear that you can see the full body of the nematode here. You can see the sporing fruit coming out of the tail, and then you can see the multiple ones coming out of where the head would be. Yeah, it literally exploded the head, just like those zombie ants. Or zombie Cordyceps, ants. Cordyceps fungi. Yeah. So this is one of the chitinophagic ones. This is a, a chitinous hard-bodied insect. Again, not able to really identify what it was, but you can see articulating legs with different joints. It looks um, like a regular old little soil mite. I didn't know enough to really want to claim it, but I mean, it does look like a soil mite to me, but I refer to your knowledge farther against than mine. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't swear by it, but you know, from my experience behind the microscope, I see a lot of those little mites, so that would be my yep. guess. And they're good and mites. The large glomulation of the um, the fruiting body right in the center of the head, and then you see actually sort of shot this like spear out to the left, going up towards that top corner. Yeah. Spear of fungal growth created two more external glomulations. Now I'm not sure if that's part of the body that had already been infected and had broken off, or if that's it jumping from uh, one, one, one to another. Yeah, very well could be. I mean, look that. That's how they find stuff is through chemotaxis. So it only makes sense that they're going to grow in the direction in which the food source is. Exactly, exactly. So this is another angle on a similar one. Yeah, it looks like, looks like a soil mite to me. And here was uh, two different ones in the soil matrix. So this one's actually out of my bed. Very cool, dude. Very cool. And all this was just kind of accidentally discovered at a NOFA conference. Yeah, it was at the Organic Cultivators Conference. We had NOFA there, um, Ruben and I want to say John Duke, and they were running the microscopy for us. And they had asked me to bring in some samples of my soil and some IMO to just take a look at. And we had Dr. James White there, who's a, a soil microbiological specialist. And so we happened to just have this conglomeration of the mines we had the tools we had the soil samples and we did a little discovering and it was amazing it was really really cool completely accidental and um 
Very serendipitous. I, I had no anticipations. I was actually a little nervous putting my soil in front of them, not having gotten <laughs> to myself in a while and being like, man, I really hope there's a, a lot of good microbiology. I hope my soil structure is still decent. I know I've been having some breakdown and my large scale is becoming very finite and I need to reintroduce large scale aggregate and stuff like that. And some more organic matter and large compost size. And I hope it's going to look good. And they all came up to like, wow, did you know what's in here? And I'm like, God. Yes, yes. Kinda. <laughs> you tell. <laughs> no, it was it was amazing. Absolutely amazing having them there because um, that's the type of resources where I love being the dumbest guy in the room. I oh, give yeah. me the greatest chance to learn. And to have people like them being able to pick apart, identify, and discuss something that I created was such a unique and really cool educational experience for me because I wasn't just taking away from it what they were saying about like, oh, here's what we've seen here and here's what we're seeing here, because that directly translated to me in my mind of, oh, well, I know when I put that in and I know how that got there. And I, okay, so if I augment this and if I can tweak this again, getting those data points, the brain starts working, the wheels start churning, and all of a sudden you start thinking data points to action points and what caused what. And it's it was really cool. It was an amazing experience. I geek about it still. Oh, God. I, to be in the room with those levels of cats would be, yeah, that's like going to a Led Zeppelin concerts. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was amazing because it was one of the first times that he released um, some of the research that he'd been working on that showed that, like when I first learned from you, we understood that the microbes went up to the roots, that they exchanged for exudates, that they gave their, you know, essentially micronutrients, macronutrients that they'd mined from the soil, and that they would get sort of like a new shopping list of what the plant needed via chemical receptors or some sort of signaling and that they would exchange exudates to the microbes and they'd both get the foods that they needed and the microbes would go back out with their new shopping list to find the new nutrients that were needed. He actually released data there that showed through, if I remember correctly, don't quote me solidly, but I believe electromicroscopy, electromagnetic microscopy, something like that. Electron microscope. Thank you, brain which is blinding. That's all right. Uh, through electron microscopy that they're actually not communicating on the outside of the cell wall that the plant is actually opening its cell wall and enveloping the microbe bringing it within itself putting it in inside of an encapsulating chemical structure injecting superoxide into that space to dissolve the cell wall of the microbe in this case the outer wall. Yep, the outer cell wall changing its dna rna sequence and that's instead of it, I was thinking, oh, it gives it a chemical signal to tell it what oh, I need phosphorus or nitrogen now. No, it's actually changing that at the molecular RNA level to now this is what you're going to search for. Reconstituting its exterior cell wall and then re-ejecting it back out of its cell wall into the soil matrix to let it go on its way again. That, that just absolutely staggers my mind. But at the same time, it's beauty and simplicity. It makes so much more sense to just absorb the microbe, essentially reprogram its software, and then eject it back out into the world to do what you need it to do, rather than being like, okay, hey, we're gonna communicate here, and I need this, here's the shopping list, don't lose it. And like all of those sorts of little nuances that could happen and, and miscommunication, misunderstanding, lost in translation, but no, it just says, okay, no, I'm just gonna change you on a fundamental level and then send you on your way. That's just so cool. So he has now officially documented horizontal gene transfer in the rhizophagy cycle. That's yeah. what he just discovered. And that he's been so working cool. on this shit for fucking years. I know. I know. He's been putting in decades of research and he's finally, everything's coming to fruition. 
Yep. I mean, we've known about horizontal gene transfer, but we didn't understand how exactly it worked. And it only makes sense that it would be a part of the rhizophagy cycle because, yeah, the, 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 the plant cell is allowing that fully bodied bacteria in and it has to remove the nitrogen, nitrous uh, shell on the outside to be able to communicate with it. So, I mean, damn, but he, he had, he'd never proven it. So that's an amazing new discovery. So I got I to talk to that boy again, man. I, I, I so love talking with him, but we just go crazy. And then all of a sudden, oh, my wife's call. I got to go. I got to. <laughs> it happens. I mean, we've been there. Oh, we've had many, many a late night, three hour phone call. <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. That's for sure. Yeah, that's well, I'm glad you shared that because I had no idea that he had finally documented one of his many hypotheses on what was really happening. Oh, it's amazing. We're we're at a unique point in time in history where we're getting to live not only in an industry that is the first of its kind, really, in a long time, but we're also living in an age where the science is now catching up to so many hypotheticals that we've been proposing for a long time. And we're actually starting to gain so much more of a deeper understanding of the soil biology all the way through the pharmacology of how the cannabis plant that we cultivate works within us. And there's just it is such an exciting time to be in this industry and to be alive and a scientist and well i can't call myself a scientist but you, yeah, know, you can dude we've had that conversation you're uh, a rudimentary scientist rudimentary scientist no Entry citizen level layman <laughs> i'm the student scientist Whatever. i, I own a microscope actually i own a few microscopes now but um yeah i mean always always looking to learn but it is such a just incredible time to be able to be here and to see so many of these things that we hypothesize and to be able to come up with concepts that we can, you know, five years down the line, we can go from hypothesis to scientific. And that's just for science as a, as a whole, that is light speed. Yeah. That is absolute light speed. Like most people, things happen within, you know, decades to generations as far as that type of research and understanding. And we're, we're getting it like this. And it's just so cool. So cool to be literally living the creation of history. And, you know, the, the best part about this is, is finally the ivory walls are crumbling. They're releasing the data that they held in their towers that we could never have access to. And more importantly, you're getting interdisciplinary science, which is the key to everything. Because once these people start sharing, hey, my thing does this. How do you think it'll affect that? Oh, my God. It just light bulb, light bulb, light bulb, all the way across the friggin' board so and that was that was something traditionally was discouraged in in the ivory towers they didn't want you know these inner they didn't want the distraction so i got a story for you go ahead um you know that i come from a background of academia and that a lot of my family are professors mm -hmm. well specifically my grandfather that actually just passed this past april um he was 98 years old he was actually responsible for the creation of interdisciplinary studies as a as a concept. He wow. created it at Brown University. Um, I want to say back in the 60s or 70s. I don't remember exactly. They have an entire article written about Professor George Morgan. And at that point in time, it was called the Open Curriculum. And then from there, it developed and became known as interdisciplinary studies. And I actually attribute a huge amount of my success and my ability to connect these different dots to the fact that I grew up in a household learning from him at first grade through eighth grade, I lived with them a good portion of the year because they were right near my school. And so every day after school, it was 
Professor Grandpa and I did homework. And I think that that definitely influenced the way that I think to a huge extent. And it's a large portion of what I try to bring when I teach is this, the concept of grasping all to understand a finite. Multiple approach. Yep. Tactics. Yeah. The other half of it is that uh, one of the things you actually helped me learn uh, was that my ADD and dyslexia is actually a superpower. And it is. Not, not a, something that makes me, you know, uh, lesser or more difficult. But when I use my ADD now properly, that's one of the reasons why I, I think I've become such an exceptional um, facility designer and cultivation management and advisor is that I have the ability to hold all of these different highly complex systems in my brain at one time, where normally for me to focus on something effectively, I have to focus on just one thing and try to tune out the other six things my brain's trying to think about. And that was one of the reasons I smoked cannabis when I was younger is that it would allow me to slow down my brain's processing. So it's like, okay, I'm only thinking about three things or four things now instead of six. <laughs> and it would allow me to focus on, okay, math homework. But when I let my brain go, so to speak, and I, I let the reins off and I let it run and I give it something that it really, really wants, like highly complex systems that all integrate together, like HVAC, lighting, plant metabolism, genetic soil structure, irrigation, PPFD on canopy, all these different things and how they play together. My brain just sort of like goes from stumbling to like smoothly juggling. And, and it's then, like, oh, yeah, everything works. And, and then my brain is like in hyperspeed. And it's like, okay, everything is working now in concert because the six things that we're trying to think about normally are actually all six things that go together. And I'm able to get to that end result so much faster and smoother and cleaner and also be able to understand whenever I make little tweaks or adjustments to any of those uh, those portions of the algorithm that it, it trickles down to every other portion of the algorithm. But I, I definitely attributed that to the ADD and dyslexia, which I have now learned to harness, and then being raised with a grandfather that started inter uh, interdisciplinary studies. I agree 100%. And, you know, I wish there was more of your grandfather out there because that, that – very rare. That's very rare. So I have to say he has left a beautiful and huge legacy behind him of students. Uh, when we did his celebration of his career, I think it was five years ago or so at Brown University, um, there was over a thousand students that reached out that wanted to come from across the world. We had to limit it to 150, but it was amazing and humbling for me to see that the almost every single one of the students that came back was the top tier of whatever profession they were in. It was all top C-suite members, top researchers and educators that every one of them had just driven right to the top of their niche and was so passionate and so motivated and every one of them attributed it to interdisciplinary methodologies of thinking and the, the concept of understanding everything. He's, I believe his first course, his first class that he taught under that was, um, I believe it was called the human condition oh or that may have been his first book i don't remember I'm, I'm i'm muddling it now but it was it was essentially a class about humanity studies philosophy physics and just integrating everything that is our world and how you don't have to think about one thing and one thing that they all interact they all at one level or another sort of like the, the six dimensions of differentiation where everything is connected within six steps yep. so it's a really cool concept and thought. But yeah, people should actually definitely check it out. Uh, Professor George Morgan, Brown University, Interdisciplinary Studies and the Human Condition. Beautiful, beautiful. Fascinating. Now, maybe we should um, reel back in on a couple other things. Um, I think that you have obviously shined to the audience about your level of, of design and build. 
But let's talk about water and lights because yeah. those are always things that are really, really important and generally left to poor decision and not yeah. So you pick the topic to start on, whether it's water or light, and go for it. I mean, they go hand in hand to me. Um, when I pick lighting, it is based off of what is our gold PPFD on canopy. So how much photosynthetic radiation do we want actually reaching that canopy at any given second and having an equal spread. So when it comes to lighting, I am more interested in uniformity than I am in intensity. I will take a light that evenly distributes within 50 PPFD across a four foot spread, which is your standard footprint of a light these days is about a four by four. So if it can give me a 50 point to 100 point max differentiation or delta across that entire grid, that is worth more to me than having a light that can hit 1500 PPFD. Because if I have uniformity, I can increase the amount of lights on that specific given area, or I can uh, decrease the distance of the lights to the plant to increase the amount of photosynthetic radiation or PPFD that's actually hitting that canopy at any given point in time. But I can't do anything to improve uniformity. Cross lighting does help to some extent where you have a light here and a light here and they project at an angle across each other. That does help to correct some of the deficiencies of poor lighting pattern uniformity, but it's never going to completely fix it. And anyone that operates at scale understands that canopy management is not just about being on top of your training and trimming and trellising. It's also about uniformity of light intensity and uniformity of light spectrum. Different light spectrums make plants grow in different ways. Certain light spectrums create more stretch. Other light spectrums create more dense internodal spaces. So if you have a lack of uniformity of light spectrum, you can have some that are growing really tall. Same exact genetic. You can have cuts that are the same clone. So they're uniform in their genetic expressions, or they should be, um, up to the point of chemovar, which is the way that that genetic then expresses it in its environment. But the specifics of that plant should be the same. So you can have one that's got three inch internodal distancing and one plant that has like a one inch internodal distancing. They can be in the same area just because they have ununiform light, um, light spectrums that are being given to them. And they can also have the same <laughs> non-uniform light intensities. So I'd rather a light that gives me, you know, 1000 PPFD to 900 PPFD corner to corner than a light that gives me 1500 PPFD in the middle and it drops to 800 by the edges which is way more more common than you would think. Um, the other issue with lighting is that people don't really understand often the way that plant metabolism works in the, the trifecta, light intensity, nutrition, uh, environment. And essentially what you need to do is you need to be able to hit all three of those for the plant's metabolism to properly operate. So you need to have enough water in your soil media for your plant to be able to properly able, be able to transpire, which is based off of your vapor pressure deficit which is determined by your room's relative humidity if you're going rudimentary style or leaf actual temperature if you're going proper. So it'd be room temperature and relative humidity within the room, which is also then based potentially off of your vapor pressure deficit because you need also your leaf temperature. So when you take these different pieces of data, you're able to get a grid and you can look across this grid and you can go with your relative humidity and your temperature and you can find what your vapor pressure deficit is roughly. Now, if you get really specific into it, you have to do a more in-depth algorithm, and that's with leaf temperature, actual, and surface. Um, that gets more in-depth and is much more complicated. But if you have that basic of your VPD, well, now you're able to understand how much moisture should be transpiring through your plant and at what rate. So you know how much moisture you need to be putting into that room, onto your soil, to allow that plant to transpire rapidly enough to be able to keep up with the temperature that you're having in the room. And all of that needs to be in correlation with how much pressure your plants are getting under that light. 
So if you've got a high vapor pressure deficit, you're ripping a lot of moisture through that plant. You need to have enough moisture going into that soil media so that that plant doesn't dry out excessively while also, yep, perfect. While also matching that to what the plant's metabolism is doing based off of the available nutrition, available CO2, which is also your environment and your photons that are hitting the plant surface because the plant determines its nutritional capacity or not nutritional, but metabolism capacity off of how much nutrition it's getting or how balanced and how much the nutrition is, um, how well it's able to transport that nutrition, which is transpiration processes. And also partially it's transpiration and respiration processes with the Krebs cycle of using CO2 to be able to take that nutrition and the photosynthetic radiation used with CO2 to actually make ATP, which then gives the plant its energy. So all of these factors play together. So when you ask me light or water, it's like, well, they go like this. <laughs> They're they, go, hand in hand. they go hand in hand. Um, but I mean, the same thing can be said about environmental. You know, that's that's why I think that those really are the trifecta is nutrition, environment. And I put environment under CO2 and irrigation because both of those play into your environmental control. And then lighting is also part of environmental control. But often I'll separate lighting off because even though it's part of environmental control as far as its ambient output of temperature into the room from those lights, it's more important impact is the photosynthetic radiation it's putting onto your canopy. So even though it does dip a foot into the environmental, I still separate it out as its own thing. So have you heard about sunrise and sunsets and light? Yes. Integrating higher and lower light intensities throughout the day to mimic, again, biomimicry, trying to replicate nature. Yeah. Um, I think that sunsets and sunrises are an excellent concept. I do not think that they need to be drawn out to the extent that I've seen a lot of uh, people do it in certain facilities. Um, what we're finding, sort of anecdotal data here, I don't have any hard science yet, but what I have seen in a number of other reports and what I have heard from people such as Dr. Bruce Bugsby and other people that are really names in the industry, DLI is more important. So the daily light index that the plant requires, the actual amount of like, if we were to give it a, a number like 50,000, let's say, um, that getting that number of amount of radiation to the plant is more important than the duration of time that the plant is given radiation. So to that extent, what we can equate that to is like the sun is stronger near the equator than it is in the northern and summer hemispheres. You're still getting the same amount of light outdoors if you're, you know, it's 12 hours is 12 hours, but the amount of intensity of that light is drastically different. Now we've experienced that just going outside during the sun and going outside during the winter. You can be outside in the winter all day long. You don't really get a sunburn. You go outside for three hours during the peak of summer and you get crispy. And it's because there's a difference in the actual intensity of the photosynthetic radiation. Or in the case, not for us, photosynthetic, but for the plant, in this case, photosynthetic radiation. So have you fucked around with UV? Yeah, UV, UV, UVA. Yep. Um, I definitely believe that there is there's tangible science that backs the benefits of UV. Um, but like all things, moderation and targeted. So UV is a stressor. Um, it is naturally occurring in the, you know, in the natural sun. So it is something that the plant is used to. There's some, some data that shows that it is useful throughout the entire life cycle in varying levels of intensity. Um, but there's more data that's showing right now, predominantly on flowering that it's being used. Um, specifically for things of secondary metabolite increases. So you, by using UVB specifically during targeted portions of your growth cycle and specifically targeted portions of your day, you can actually drastically increase, or not drastically, but substantially, uh, markedly increase 
the amount of secondary metabolite production of cannabinoids and terpenoids and flavonoids, um, specifically cannabinoids and terpenoids from what I've seen. Nice. So yeah, and absolutely. And most of the lighting systems that I've worked with, um, that I've selected to work with in facilities that I build or retrofit into facilities, all have integrated light spectrum tunability um, on presets because most people don't know enough that they should really be playing with those. Um, I think that light spectrum tunability is phenomenal and that growers should be playing with it in their R&D room, but not in their production floor. Research yeah. and development is where you do your dabbling, is where you play around with things, do your experimentation, but production needs to be what production is and that needs to pay the bills. So yeah, you don't- Production supports R&D. Exactly. If smart, if you're smart. Most of these guys don't have R&D. No, yeah. most facilities that I go into do not have R&D. I will not design a facility that does not have an R&D room. I just won't yeah. do it. If my client doesn't want to have one, then I say, okay, I thank you very much for your time. You can find another designer. Because if it's going to have my name on it, it's got to have longevity in the mind. It's got to have sustainability and it's got to be designed properly. Beautiful, beautiful. Everything starts with research and research oh, starts with that. Well, and production pays for the research so that the research can build production. Yep, yep. one hand washes the other. It's called the friggin' infinity loop, right? Yep, yep. one hand washes the other, man. I could yeah. not tell you how many facilities I've been into where they're like, okay, so we have six different rooms going and each one of them is different and uh, we're trying something different in each one of them and, and we're trialing two different nutrient lines and four different soil medias and different genetics and we're pheno hunting in this production room and I'm like, what the fuck? You wonder why your books are bad. Like, <laughs> You need to pay the bills before you can mess around. And I understand that messing around is how in a lot of ways you can increase your profitability. You have to, you know, dabble to refine your skills, to learn what works, to get better, to get those yields. But you need to build your business able to produce at the level that you're at. And that's why, even though I'm an organics guy through and through, I love living soils. I love regenerative methodologies. There are clients that I've worked with where I recommend that because of their situation, because of their skill sets and knowledge, I'm like, look, you've got three rooms. You're going to get two of them up and running conventional and we're going to get one of them running organic and you're going to learn to operate this system properly and then we're going to phase the other two out but in the meantime you need product on the shelf that you can pay your bills with that is repeatable consistency that i can give you a recipe to follow and that's it you're good just follow that and don't change but over here you're going to need to learn you're going to need to observe you're going to need to be influential and you're going to need to learn to read the plants the microbiology etc start learning this pay the bills with that perfect I just wanted to jump in for half a second and go back to light. Remember that certain frequencies penetrate the soil and mm -hmm. energize the biology in the soil. Absolutely. That's why I'm. we've been dabbling with subcanopy uh, lighting, um, both directionally towards the canopy and directionally towards the soil. Nice. Nice. It was interesting. I mean, there's, there's definitely benefits and drawbacks. Um, you have to pick the right lighting. Intensity needs to be substantially less because you're putting it so close and also you have to think about a plant like technically yes plants have pigmentation and receptors on the underside of their leaves but they're designed to have the receptors on the top of their leaves because that's where the sun comes from and so they the can't hide. majority yeah they can't hide well from getting sunburned on the underside you know yeah. what i mean yeah. they can pray they can pray when they want it but they can kind of turn away yeah oh absolutely I've, I've been in rooms that are getting excessive levels of PPFD for what the plant's nutritional capacity is and for what the room's environmental parameters are allowing for. So they're just jamming them with like 1500 PPFD, but nothing else in that entire equation is, is set up to be handling that level of intensity. And you'll see almost like the, the calcium claw that you'll get. 
yeah. it looks like that, except you'll see even further that the leaf, the, the angle uh, of the have folded even further in, it's like a, a double taco. It looks almost like a like a like a mustache that's curly cued. Wow, that's I, crazy. So I saw that in a facility, and I'm like, man, serious, serious calcium deficiency going on. And then I checked their nutrients, and I'm like, there's no way you have a nutritional deficiency in calcium going on. And I took one of the plants, and I took it out of the room, and I put it into one of their bedrooms, and it unfolded right back out. And I was like, okay, no, no, there's something in the environment that's going on. And I went back in and I grabbed the quantum meter, scoped underneath the plants, and I was like, you're killing them with 1,500 PPFD right now. And ironically, they were running UVB. And on top of that, their their room was at like, I think it was like 82 degrees. Leaf temperatures were at 84. And relative humidity was in the like 50s, high 50s, low 60s. So they had a VPD of like almost a 1.8, something like that. So they were just ripping moisture through the plants and then cooking them. And the plants were just like, nope, I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that backing it up and, and enlightening the soil. See, you know, I love what, what Ken is suggesting because we do know for a fact that, that you know, especially some of the uh, far, far red specifically will penetrate up to 10 mm -hmm. feet of the soil and support my, microbial communities. So I think it is a good idea, but again, I think you're right in the, in the essence that you not only have to go slow and slow, but you you understand you're not going to penetrate ten feet, so you don't need nearly the the. Yeah, the level what are you going to penetrate ten feet when you have a two foot deep bed? Right, right. What are you in the concrete underneath? Put into the concrete. <laughs> That's it. No, I get it now. I get it. They're actually going past the floor, past the plate, into the sub, and getting to the soil underneath the slab. Which is, which is helping them. It's doing a good job for them, but it ain't helping me up top. <laughs> you know, I think that the one place that I could see that being really viable as an application would be in hybridized greenhouses where they have the troughs cut straight into the native soil for where the yep. beds are. And so you have truly grounded into native soil. So you are getting that 10 feet of depth penetration into the native soil with your, you know, two or three foot or four foot raised bed above it. So you'd be getting anywhere from, you know, six to eight feet or six to six to no four to six feet of additional penetration past. So big question. And this is a leader. Uh, are you grounding your beds? I was hoping you were going to bring no, that up. No, most of my clients do not, do not yet see the values and benefits of grounding. Um, I mean, electromagnetics work is definitely a thing. It's, it's science. It's just, I'm working on it. All right. Like I'm getting, I'm getting <laughs> you bringing the woo -woo in. No, no, man. Like there's definitely been times where I've walked into a meeting with the CEO or C-suite members and investors and they're like, okay, so we're going to want you to do blank, blank and blank. And I have actually walked in once because some of them knew that I knew Suzanne and her tinfoil hats. And there was a guy who had a little piece of tinfoil there and he's like, am I going to need this? And I was like, look, there's no tinfoil hat stuff today. Okay. It's just science. And, you know, when we talk about the microbiology and we talk about some of this stuff that they can, they're still not really grabbing it as science yet. They get a little scared. You know what I mean? It's, it's outside their wheelhouse. It's outside of their levels of education and their, the normal wor world that they walk in and the circles that they hear from. Um, grounding is definitely still in that tinfoil hat phase for a lot of people. Uh, I do have some people that are interested. Uh, the facility that we're going to be talking about more in, uh, the one that I'm doing a lot of this research out of that I'm going to be building uh, or we're going to be finishing building. We're going to be doing some grounding in there too. One, at least one of the rooms will have grounding to check. Um, but 
as far as a wide scale accepted thing, no. The only clients that I have that are consistently grounding are the ones that are outdoors in the field. Gotcha. Well, you that know, said, I, I have done it myself. And it, it, it's a very fucking interesting results, isn't it? It is very interesting. Um, another one that I found very interesting was, um, what was it? It was electromagnetic influence on the water before giving it to the plants. Yep. Makes the water friggin' spread out. It's like a it sort was of incredibly interesting seeing that. Um, don't really have a good company yet for large scale application. So if you have anyone that you know of, that'd be solid for that. As far as like facilities yeah. at scale, hit me up. I got one. Done. Cool. They'll do six inch mains, man. Beautiful. Beautiful. But yeah, I mean, to me, that's fascinating. And there's something beyond just like, book. Well, all right, we'll get a little tinfoil hat here for a second. Um, so there's a guy that I follow called Dr. Joe Dispenza, and he's within the alternative health world. He specializes in understanding and quantifying scientifically the impacts of specifically meditation and how we can influence things on a molecular level through meditation and through targeted thought and targeted emotions. Um, essentially, what he talks about in, in a really, really 10,000 square foot view is that all things are energy, all things are frequency, and frequency is just a representation of energy. And they have found really interesting things with water and when they run water through pipes and how it changes the molecular structure of that water, how the formation of the pipes has an impact, how many 90 degree bends there are, how hard the water is forced through those 90 degree bends, what the PSI is, and what the period of time that the water stays in those pipes and what those pipes are made out of all drastically impacted the actual molecular structure of that water. As well as the pH. And, and chemistry and all it gets dude, it gets fucking deep quick have you ever seen the the documentary um the memory of water yeah of course phenomenal dude we had pollock on the show yeah you're gonna have to look back we had fucking pollock so, on so I, thought yeah, we were back on. I thought we were friends but yeah, that, that absolutely blew my mind. Joe Dispenza and Pollock, that absolutely blew my mind. And it changed the perception that I had scientifically of the way that we treat base molecules so much. And now it's like, I did the experiment myself where I took, we have groundwater that's from a beautiful well, artesian well, run through minimal but excellent filtration. And I did a capture of it, pre-filtration, post-filtration, froze both of them and looked at the structures of the crystals so cool and uh the next one i want to do is i want to do rainwater from where i live filtered unfiltered and then if i can i wanted to try to get a deep well straight capture from alongside my sheathed well and like drop a tube down and get a couple droplets straight from it so that it actually never ran through oh. the pump and exactly that never ran through the impeller pump it'd be cool it'd be cool one day when i have the time you know with all that extra time i have yeah we laughed about that before we got on the show <laughs> what, is, what is spare time? Do they really make that anymore? No, no, no. Manufacturing went down a couple of years ago, I heard. During the <laughs> and they haven't brought it back yet. No, no it wasn't deemed an essential. <laughs> so um, normally around here, we start to take questions, but I've noticed there aren't a lot of questions today. So obviously, um, the information that you're providing is, is uh, doesn't leave a lot of holes. So I... Just giving you some kudos, my friend. That, that appreciate your, it. Thank you. The way you're prepared or 
presenting the information, it's very clear and, and understandable. So, you know, big ups for well, you. I think a lot of that also has to do with that it's you and that when you and I talk, it's just a free flow conversation. You and I have a tendency to be very comprehensive in our conversations because we think alike and we, we have similar paths that our brains go down. So it's not like you're going that way and I'm going that way. And we have these leftovers that didn't quite get caught. <laughs> We're pretty leapfroggy, you know? All right. So uh, a food for thought. And, okay. and when you get into this next level facility, I would like you to, to do an electroculture in one of the beds. Ground right. it down to everything, but do electroculture in one of them. And yeah. just see if internally, inside the constraints of the building, the insulation, and all of those things that would technically prevent those types of magnify or ma magnetically charged atomic particles could perhaps get blocked. It would just be really interesting to know if it did have an effect internally in a building. And then... I think that it's absolutely going to have an effect. There's no question. The question is just, is it tangible? Is it observable? Is it yeah. economically impactful? Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the beauties about this facility is that it is truly being built ground up. And I've had it as my baby since the owner first approached me two years ago. And oh, gee, almost three years ago now. And um, so, I, I mean, we're controlling where the floor is being poured, depths. I'm having grounding rods placed, whether we're going to use them or not. There's going to be a sheath for that in the floors. No. Um, so we'll have grounding in there. The question that I've been struggling with is that each of these rooms is just shy of 700 square feet of canopy. They are seven beds that are 24 feet long and four feet wide. So each of these three rooms has seven beds that I can play with within that microsphere of the room. So one room will be the control, two rooms will be experimental, but even within those two rooms, I can subdivide technically seven more minor experiments within that major experimental umbrella. And what I've been trying to figure out is for seven beds that are 24 feet long, four feet wide, three feet deep, with the soil structure that we're gonna have built, what gauge of copper am I gonna need run from these beds and everything? So what gauge of spike do I need to what depth? Now I would assume that the depth for grounding would be basically the same as standard grounding, it just becomes a question of diameter and therefore surface area of that copper rod in the soil to the diameter and length of copper wiring run to each of the beds because electrics, electrical current loses uh, it loses resistance over distance and over diameter as well. So I'm trying to figure these out and I'm like, I, I got to get an electrical engineer to help me with this. Well, you know what? It's, you know, it's, it's already been done. So don't reinvent the wheel. Just look at lightning rods. Right. They're all the fucking same. They're all the same gauge. They're the same, you know, depth. I think it's an eight foot yeah. stake that they pound down. Yeah. Um, always twisted wire. It's not single strand. Yeah. Always braided. Yeah. Always braided. So, you know, just start. Yeah, I suppose if it can handle a lightning bolt, it can handle a minor electrical grounding. <laughs> right. And and then then if, if you find in the future that the, the actual electroculture is is adding effect to it to tie those two together oh my god you, you could be harvesting stuff from the below as well as above oh the potential could be enormous dude enormous. That's it. i'm creating tesla cannabis yeah yeah literally tesla's fucking smiling right now he's fucking laughing his ass off
No, I can't wait to get to play with those for sure. I mean, when we get the facility up and running, I want you to come out, like I said, for sure to do a run through. And then I want us to just, you know, do some intellectual conversation about how we can set up some interesting experiments and utilize things and help to really grow the knowledge basis. I want this place to be a, an epicenter for education and research and the owners are totally on board. Well, we did a, a really interesting experiment with the ES uh, crew um, where we ran uh, cannabis through the machine to determine if it would accurately remove uh, two farm bills, farm bill, uh, farm bill standards uh, of destruction of cannabis. And it did. It was it was 0.03 was left and it was high THC when it went in. Nice. Now, interesting thing was I sent the output to three different cannabis farmers to play with to see if the if the plant power transformed into a better metabolite as far as in the fertility or fertilizer itself. I'm sure you know the answer already. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, there's a couple of things that we could potentially do utilizing this machine because this machine is, first of all, it's aerobically digesting and it's causing all of these crazy metabolic processes that we, I mean, we're just scratching the surface on the potential, but. Absolutely. And I mean, I like to do a closed loop within all my facilities anyways. Um, minimizing the amount of waste. And it makes no sense to me. Like I understand regulations must be followed and such, but it makes no sense to me that I'm going to grow a plant. I'm going to take the fibrous portions of that plant and the, the non-arterial portions of that plant. And I have to shred them. Okay. And then I have to mix them with equal parts, other stuff. Non-usable. So I have to buy product to mix in, to shred this product, to pay, to get rid of this product. No. <laughs> so yeah, th this facility does have an entire uh, dirty room. So full clean room design for the entire facility, but it has a section corrugated off section of just dirty room for um, both soil mixing and then a secondary room for waste disposal and composting. So I'd be totally down to try to get one of those machines and set it up in there and just do an in-house cycle because there's going to be living beds that we can feed it right back into. Dude, I'm telling you, but unfortunately, uh, they're just at the phase now. They're looking for capital um, as well as um, sales so that they can start playing with scaling down. Now, I spent a good bit of time with Mo um, talking about benchtop units um, because I thought, oh, my God, if, if I could get benchtop units, any landscaper could drive around in a trailer with one of these, take all of the food yep. scraps from the neighborhood, produce a, a fucking fertilizer and apply it on the property. And, and now you've got zero waste and you've got a profitable green job moving forward. Absolutely. But the problem is, is the controls and the level of management that's required to maintain all the pumps, all the aeration, the pH, you know, levels, you, you know, you know. So maybe at some point in time, we'll have to fly your ass out here and show you the machine and let your gears get going because maybe Absolutely. there's another way to do it. Um, on a very, very small scale, because I, at the end of the day, you have a, you have a digester, which runs at a certain temperature. You've got it's a it's just about hitting the parameters. Yeah, literally, dude, literally. And I'm sure, you know, that would be a pretty much a no brainer. And then it's just a matter of trying to find the individual components off the market, which I've got some pretty good ideas of where to look. Mm -hmm. uh, but then putting the whole thing together is. Yeah. Yeah. Assembling an actual functional unit. Yeah. Yeah. And small. 
again, mi yep. miniaturizing this is a bitch. They have the what ability to it right now. Uh, it, the, the demonstration unit does uh, five tons a day. Um, they have they but, but, like ballpark dimensions. Oh, it fits in a trailer, dude. Well, like, like a like a tow behind trailer or like an 18. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, probably, it's probably a 16 foot long trailer with a with a kind of, you know, the flat square front. Um, so, and yeah, that's I mean, scaling that down. If it, you said five tons a day, yeah, yeah, that's that's like five hundred x your standard facility production. Right, I know it's too much. It's way too much. But that the best, like large farm scale production. Yeah, that would be like a hemp farm or something like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. uh, but none, nonetheless, like they also can very easily scale up to a hundred tons a day and do it all in the size of two tennis courts. That's and yeah, it, man, you, you name the day, I'll book the flight. All right. So, and the interesting thing too is to understand that, that you get full digestion in one hour of whatever you fed in there. One Did you hour. see the look on his face, Leighton? Did you see that? Like, what? Did you just say an hour? An hour. One hour, brother. So, yeah, it's it, it's it's amazing. All right, so uh, it's the 11th. What are you doing Tuesday? <laughs> <laughs> Beat me up, Scotty. I'm coming. <laughs> All right, so now the questions have gotten pretty heavy real quick. All right, so oh, let's oh, – yeah, I'm sorry, guys. I guess I stopped explaining well. <laughs> let's power through those real quick, and if there's a Sounds little good. bit of time in the end, we'll, we'll, we'll find something to chop up. Excellent. Okay, uh, let's start with this one. Ever heard of plasma activated water? No, no, I, I plasma I, in what context? Yeah, pl plasma is just gonna evaporate like, water. Plasma, the thing, plasma, the energy, plasma, I think plasma, the brain? energy, like as in off of the light. I've never heard of this. Uh, reach out, mud, and send us some more information. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's it, I think he's kind of thinking it's more like a UV. Now we know UV does a wonderful uh, biological scrub of water. Yeah, you see it. Yeah, if you hit water with a plasma, you're gonna turn into steam instantly. So I don't see spraying water through an arc. Arc. Arc of plasma. So you're talking so yeah, about essentially evaporate. having like two components. You've got your plasma arc between them and you're projecting a stream of aqueous solution water through that arc sort of like flash electrifying it as it passes through sounds a little dangerous i wouldn't want to be touching that water on either end no 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 you got to barehand it <laughs> but did, did i did i hypothesize that correct mud we'll have to wait for him to come back on now and he had another one here um also, could you go into detail about how you go about grounding a bed indoors on a second floor, etc.? Thank you for your time. And I know we've discussed quite a bit of this already. So oh, yeah, second that's... floor leads me to an immediate question. Second floor is in multi-tier cultivation, like single tier, second tier, third tier cultivations within a single space, like on racks, or you're on the second floor of a building and you're trying to get grounding to plants that you have growing on the second floor of a building. So either way, it's easy. Just look into lightning rods. They've already got all this figured out because they had to ground the gutters. They grounded the peaks. They grounded into the ground. And that's multiple floors. It could be, you know, some of these buildings yeah. were 20, 30 stories up. So, and then you yeah, just get into that floor. Just 
run a grounding rod outdoors and run your grounding cable up to your second floor and in. Bam, you're done, bud. And you can also consider, uh, you look at a lot of the grounding mats and et cetera for your bed and that, it just plugs into the wall because your wall plug is supposed to if be it's a, If it's a grounded wall plug, it uses that, yeah. But that's yeah. pretty minimal conductivity for- Yes, for very minimal. So the, so the interesting thing was, and I saw someone else talk about this, like, can I just ground the corner of my bed? The answer is no. What you really want to do is get the, um, it's duct tape, but it's got a metal instead of just a regular plastic or vinyl. Yeah, ducting tape. Ducting yeah. tape, yeah, it's metal tape. And you tape that underneath your mattress on your bed and do like three or four strips and then take that and connect it outside, not to your internal electricity. You want it grounded without having any uh, other sources of electricity that could cross contaminate what you're trying to do. This is a big, big disclaimer on that. I can just picture somebody running electrical medical med, metal tape under their bed and, and then plug it in the wall. <laughs> Plugging it in the wall. <laughs> no, no. I got no. it on my whole bed, lit on fire. No, no, no. Don't plug it in. And Gorski actually is talking sure. about the the actual um, uh, scientific formula for, the for tracking the equations. Wow. All right, dude, man. Well, hey, why don't you get a hold of uh, Ken here and uh, get get on the fucking agenda? Let's get you here to talk about some of this stuff. Yeah, dude, reach out anytime. You've got my contact information through the show, Benjamin Acadia Farms and Ben at AcadiaFarmsFamily.com and AcadiaFarmsFamily.com. Reach out. I'd love to talk. Well, there you go, Gorski. Uh, so we'll go to Hillbilly Herb here. I've been thinking of trying a grounded foot pad uh, for bed. So you would be in your bed, but your feet would be against a pad. I think or maybe putting about a pad in the bed. bed. Well, we the talked about two different kinds of beds here: plant bed, people bed. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> hey, why not? Good. <laughs> so I, I would say, you know, and, and it, all right, if you if you really want to take this to the next level. Put that tape in socks. Connect the socks to a wire. Put them on. Connect that outside into a grounding rod. And that would be an interesting thing because all of our body toxins come out of our feet. I, mean, I don't know if you've seen the studies of putting like onion mixes together and putting them on your feet and then putting your socks on. But the great way to detox. So, And we know that's the way that the magnetic forces comes into our body naturally when we're walking on the sand or out in nature, forest bathing, whatever. So that might be a kind of cool little side gig to do, see what happens. Make see if sure you get some crazy that grounding post deep into the ground, because if the post gets hit by lightning, you will get electrified. <laughs> <laughs> hey, get back that. <laughs> I, dude, I know plenty of people that got bolted, myself included, and I'm still here talking about it. So it's oh, not all bad. <laughs> I have a deep, deep respect and fear for electricity. You can't hear it, can't see it, can't smell it. It just bites you. <laughs> yeah, throw you across the room. Yeah, oh, did, yeah. I, I caught a lot when I was younger once. It was uh, an electrifying experience that left me with nerve damage. <laughs> now well, we have an excuse for you. No, that's why you are who you are, motherfucker. You got both. <laughs> okay, so would you like uh, put a piece or plate of copper 
in this soil and then wire it to the earth outside? No, you don't even have to put a plate of copper that's way too expensive. Get yourself a small copper rod that is the depth of your bed. You don't need an eight-foot copper rod if you're running in a two-foot or three-foot bed, but give yourself a, as much surface area within that bed as you can with that rod. And then the key is that your rod outside needs to be, at, like Leighton had said, grounded at eight feet and have a braided line going between the two. Mm-hmm. And braided copper, not like not like a, an extension cord that's got braided wires within it. You need a braided copper grounding line. So it's the wire, copper wires are all wrapped around each other. Yeah. Yeah. We're actually supposed to be having some guys that are specialists in this. Uh, if they ever get back to me later on this year, uh, they're over in Europe right now. So hopefully so they'll show up. Let me know. I'll up. sit in the background. So, that's, so that's the electroculture people? Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And then uh, would a copper plate be effective, more surface area? Again, no, no. If, yeah, if no, you're really looking, for, yeah. If you're looking for surface area, just run a single-stranded copper wire that you yeah. can buy that are super cheap, and just run it right around the outside of the bed, inside the soil, or do what Ben said: just put a stake in there. But the yeah. particles, remember, clay platelets have magnetism. Silt has magnetism. Some sands have magnetism, but organic matter definitely has magnetism it's, i would it's say that more important honestly than surface area of your grounding rod method is uh structure of your soil yeah what is in your soil and how electromagnetically conductive it is is i would say vastly more important than how much surface area you have of metal into that soil and if For it's instance, super dry it's yeah. not going to conduct if it's moist it's going to conduct and also the, the the matrix makeup of it if it's low organic matter and like if you're running in a, a cocoa perlite mix, you're going to have yes. drastically less grounding capacity than if you're running in a living soil. Mm-hmm. So right. the last one, target frequency range for cannabis in Hertz. Does anybody know? Uh, I'd like to dog ear that one if I could get the answer too. <laughs> uh, I, I would tend to say that it would be similar to uh, – the earth, which is close to what we tune our guitars with, which is uh, 3.14. You'd have to look it up. Just look up look up the frequency of the earth. Search it. Yeah, you'll, natural you'll, home of earth. <laughs> there's a uh, 432, I think. Yeah, well, whatever it is. And, and that's the one, not the one that we tune our guitars to. Remember, biomimicry, replicating yeah. nature is what we're doing here. <laughs> as to what target should I be trying to hit. In general, rule of thumb, start with where nature is and then adjust from there. So, well, hey. Cool, I would say, uh, what's your research uh, sources? Show us. Fact check them, fact check. Yeah, fact check everything. Fact check your fact checkers. Yeah, exactly. 100%, yeah. So that's it for questions, guys. Uh, Mud did want to say something that there was papers on it um on plaza plasma activated water so yeah i'll look into it thanks for giving me a little piece there i'm always looking to learn man so that's that's it for questions guys i'll jump off and you guys continue on all right so back to filtration because we never got to water filtration yeah talk to me so the main things that i run into when it comes to filtration which actually are things that i've called and run by you um the hardest people to work with are in cities they are getting beat up, beat up, adulterated water. And 
Now, it's one thing if you're just taking that water and you're running it into an RO system and then you're taking that, running it through an Anderson unit or a Dosatron, running soluble salts and stuff like that. Because at that point, you really do want to basically strip it down of everything. Uh, so the RO system does that very effectively. But if you're running in an organic system of any kind, whether you're in soilless media, bottled nutrients, dry amendments in living soil, it really doesn't matter. If you're running in an organics of any kind, there's specific compounds that you're going to want to mitigate and pull out of that water, uh, such as fluoride, chloride, sorry, fluoride, chlorine, and chloramine. I combined the two there. Like I said, it's been a long day. Um, but those are the, the major components that we deal with are trying to pull out those three chemicals that are being stabilized in. Now, chlorine is pretty easy. You can just oxygenate the water and it'll off gas actually pretty rapidly. Um, a terrible, terrible thing that you can do is stick your body into that water because your body absorbs chlorine like a sponge and you can actually get about five gallons of water cleaned of chlorine <laughs> a couple of minutes just by swirling your arm in it. But um, I don't recommend using yourself as the filter. I would say use that piece of knowledge to avoid making yourself a filter. So avoid contact with the water when possible. Um, second day would be the chloramine. Chloramine, we have to break out of the water because it's actually, it's a more complex compound. So it's we a more heavy chlorine. Uh, yeah. So we use a, a, we use a filter that actually specializes in breaking those bonds between the ammonia chloride. And the chlorine then gets off-gassed all on its own because it gets separated off and it just pulls out. And then the last one is fluoride, which the only way that I've really been able to find to deal with fluoride effectively um, is through multi-tier specific filters that are rather expensive, but they do the trick. Um, so the majority of the work that we've been trying to deal with is dealing with those situations. Much less common, but still an issue is high mineralization um, in field production or in greenhouses or more uh, rural facilities that are sort of more out there and dealing with well water versus town waters they have their own set of difficulties. You can get a lot of really high mineralization. I've got one client that's got excessively high iron, manganese, and sulfur. Um, it smells like rotten eggs and it turns everything red. So we've had to run through specific types of filtration like that, micron filtration mostly and carbon filtration to pull particles, um, bind them to other particles and then be able to remove them. So we always wanna try to pull things from your water that don't add things to your water. So I don't wanna, uh, you know, dump a bunch of something into my receptacle, my tank, my holding tank, and it has a flocculating effect where it actually binds to something and then falls out of solution. I'd rather get that in a pre-filter so that it never even gets into the holding tanks because now you've got flocculant that could get caught up into your filters. It could get into your post filters or into your system block emitter nozzles. And when you're dealing with things like Anderson units or dosatrons that deal with really, you know, uh, fine particle sizes, it doesn't take much to block them. Uh, those little emitters are very, very accurate and they need to be calibrated very specifically and having any sort of particleization or things falling out of solution in your holding tanks can be a big issue with that. So those are the main things that we've been dealing with sort of as like a, a general. Um, there's definitely been specifics like <laughs> one facility that, uh, like I said, had high, high levels of sulfur and iron and it just destroyed everything that we ran it through, every filter every dosing unit it just absolutely gunked it it was horrible um then we had another one where we had a bunch of chlorine and iron and they reacted together and it caused flocculation and yellowing of the water and we were chasing our tails trying to figure out what in hell was falling into our water in large brown clumps and settling and why our water was yellow 
and we just could not figure it out. pH was on point. Everything was good. The chlorine, for some reason, was coming in really low from what it should have been from the town. So we were actually getting it adulterated because of decomposing pipes. So they were picking up so much iron from the pipes that the chlorine was binding to it by the time it got into the facility and it was settling into that retention tank. And we could not figure out what it was, but what ended up leading us to it was that actually the chlorine was such a low level compared to what the town said it should have been that it told us that it was binding to something. And that's when we figured out that it was binding to something that was causing it to flocculate and ended up being the iron in the water. And so by putting a pre-filter for iron and changing out a set piece of uh, piping that they had on their property that was old degrading iron piping, they were able to fix the problem. Very interesting. Yeah, filtration is one of those difficult things that it like, everything in cannabis is tailor-made to the facility, but filtration especially is tailor-made to the facility because it is so, so different everywhere that you go in the country. And whether you're in a city or you're in the countryside, it's just wildly different. So uh, cake in a cup, you're not dealing with micron filters because of one bacteria is about one micron. So we're dealing with, with levels of measurement beyond microns. I mean, yeah, micron filters work great for pulling out sediments, pulling out, yeah, particles, stuff like that, but not when you're getting into chemistry. It's a whole yeah, no. ball of wax. When it deals with microbiology, the way that I respond most often is UVC. It's a great treatment very easy very consistent low expense low input doesn't adulterate your water by adding a chemical to it to sterilize it um when needed i do really like uh phosphoric acid as a stabilizer and also antimicrobial and uh anecdotal note it also adds large amounts of bioavailable phosphorus to the soil there you go there's a great great fucking answer um and yeah. something else that people should be aware of um you know, there was a lot of talk uh, from a dear mentor of mine, John Todd, about how to um, use nature to pull out um, some of these compounds like fluoride, chlorine, chloramine, etc. And one of the things that we've learned lately, once they went from chlorine to chloramine, um, we have a really bad adverse effect that's caused uh, when it comes in contact with organic you end up releasing a secondary disinfected byproduct, which is actually very toxic to forms of life, especially humans. Um, so if you're, if you're thinking about trying to filter through um, some of these more old styles, uh, you know, where you create your own charcoal bucket and a compost bucket, et cetera, down, just be aware that you're probably better off to get some kind of filter to get that chloramine out. And it's really not that difficult. Ben just gave you an answer right there. Snap that particle apart. And once it's apart, now it's harmless. Okay, so the ammonia will stay in solution. The chlorine will dis dissipate as a volatile organic compound. And then you don't have that kind of problem. But I just want to be really honest and open with people about the dangers of chloramine and especially like if you're if your water source is a reservoir and you live at the very very end of the delivery system you're getting nailed with these secondary disinfectant byproducts so start to you know educate yourself about the harms that these things can do for you get yourself a good chloramine filter or or learn other techniques you know that using organic acids and stuff like that to break them apart before you you know consume them because yeah, we're, we're not living in a very healthy time. 
Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. That's, um, I try to always have my clients be very self-sufficient. I'm a big, big proponent of being self-sufficient, of creating the tools that you need to some extent. There's a few things that I don't play with. Um, and I go straight to the specialist and I go straight to the technology and filtration is one of them. It is just not, in my experience, it is just simply not worth the potential risks, um, both in ineffective filtration and in, as you're saying, adulteration, unanticipated or unintended adulteration of it um, through the filtration process. So to me, it's just the, the expense is not outweighed by the risk. Risk is way more here. And the expense is like it's substantial depending on what you have to deal with. It is worth it. It is unequivocally worth it. And the techs come down so much in price. Well, it had until fucking COVID. And I don't no, know where. Still, it's, still, it's still pretty reasonable. I mean, I just quoted out a 30,000 square foot facility. And I think it was like 15,000 for everything. That's not bad. Not in the not big they are looking at large scale production. Uh, about fifteen thousand square feet of canopy. Yeah, that's not. Yeah, it's a yeah, dollar. Maybe. It's a dollar a square foot. <laughs> Might be worth that investment, especially when you have a big, big turnaround. You know. Yep. Yep. Um, so uh, we still got about eight, minutes, seven minutes left. Is there? Is there? Years. Yeah. You you want to talk a little bit about um, your cultivar production and, and your? Yeah. So. Um, this year, I've gone almost exclusively in the research and development garden with hash producing cultivars. Um, I've really, really gotten on the solventless train the past few years and uh, had a really, really excellent mentor for solventless hash production. Went out to Oklahoma, stayed with him for a little while. He's a real, true artist. Um, actually, Zach's been on with me uh, on, I think it was Future Cannabis Project. I don't think it was Soil Matters, but we had Zach. No, it might have been with you, though, Layton, actually, I believe. And I came to you from uh, out in Oklahoma when I did uh, two weeks back to back with you guys. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he just runs a hash house out there. That's all he does. He's a small level producer with a large scale position in the market. He's one of the top hash producers in Oklahoma. And anybody that knows the OK market, there's over 8,000. It's insane. It's absolutely insane how many licenses are out there. So to be in the, you know, the top 10, or actually I think he's in top five um hash in the market he's just absolutely crushing it and he's just such an artist that he's the type of person where i'd be like okay you know you know me i'm, I'm analytical i'm scientific i'm like okay exactly how cold do we get the water how long do we wash what level of agitation how much psi do i want to be exerting within that vortex and you know like when we're pressing you know how long do we press how much pressure what's the temperature and he'd give me these answers like put his hand on the press and he'd be like that much pressure that, that right there I'd be like and how long he's like long enough the right amount of time <laughs> like well, how warm the perfect warmth right when it's starting to you know give you the the juice that you want starting to flow for you the perfect temperature and as like quantifying his artistry and turning it into repeatable science and sops was just such an amazing experience for me and i loved it and it has really sparked my path now in the solventless realm really like finally being able to understand this art and skip a lot of that learning curve and and gain some serious proficiency with it so now the past two years it's been almost exclusively hash rosin that i've been smoking still some flour um but i find that just living live hash rosin has the most fidelity to the original terpene profile of the plant it has the least 
come out of adulteration, I find that it's the closest thing that I can get besides a live resin um, to like chewing on that fresh flower that's literally just plucked off and just biting into it and getting that real raw, true essence of the plant. And the experience itself also speaks for itself. It's just such a full bodied experience, such a pure concentrate that's just phenomenal. And the cultivars that we've been playing with are really, really, really robust and in different directions extreme fruitiness to the points of fermentation and alcohol and ethyl production all the way down to fuel and gas that almost burns the inside of your nasal cavity and almost is uncomfortable with the level of just straight raw chemicalness that it creates and then other ones that are almost putrid but in a way that you can't stop smelling and you're like oh this is terrible oh it's so bad Oh, that's absolutely nice. Come smell this. Come. Yeah, Is that that this? yeah, just like these horrible, horrible smells that you love and seeing how they translate through the hash extractions process and seeing how they change different polymerizations. I'm a, I'm a very busy person these days. I do not get to sit and smoke often anymore. Um, I'm always on the go. I'm often driving to or from clients or having meetings with clients and I can't smell like cannabis. So I've been smoking a lot more carts these days. And the biggest problem that I had with carts was just that they weren't clean. And even if they were clean, they weren't satisfactory. And if they were clean and satisfactory, they were ludicrously expensive. And I could only get them in very, very limited places because there was only a few people that produced them. So I've dedicated a lot of time in the past year to learning how to take really good hash rods and, and convert it into an excellent cartridge with no additives or adulterants. Um, and that's something that I've been really, you know, excited about and getting more and more into the biggest issue that I have right now with it is just conversion loss. When you go from that fresh press and you put it into a jar and you put it under pressure and heat for an extended period of time and the polymerization begins to take place and you see the molecular conversion from a sort of like a hardened glue, we'll call it to more of a putty to more of a cake batter to then a golden liquid it's a really really interesting conversion to watch and it's been really interesting to play with different times and temperatures and pressures and also different cultivars and different levels of headspace so um actual uh, uh inert gases space within the enclosed capsule that you've created so how much you've filled up your jar so to speak with working material versus dead space material and how that has affected the conversion time as well as the flavor to some extent of the end product. Um, no tangible effect that I've seen on efficacy, but I have noticed slight changes in adulteration of uh, the palate and the profile of the on the nose. And I think that it has to do with larger amounts of headspace, having larger amounts of oxygen present, therefore increasing oxidative reactions in the conversion. And I'm curious to see like what doing like a nitrogen purge pre-tapping would do. You know what I mean? If I could get yeah, or, or argon or something like that. So um, I think that's the next step that I'm going to start playing with is is minor adulteration of the gaseous forms within the composite. Very cool, brother. Very cool. Well, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure to see you and, and, and hear you and, and, you know, get the chance to you, get you to share the information that you have with this platform. Um, you know, this is a recorded, so it'll be, you know, out there for the future for anybody or you know any of your friends that you want to turn on to it. Um, you can reach back to Ken. He'll let you know when he posts it up on, on the, all of the platforms. But really appreciate your work, brother. You know, deep love, deep respect. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, 
Yeah, and and please, you know what? Come back on when when you have that facility up and running and give us a facility tour because oh, absolutely. I know the audience loves those those field days, those garden tours and it sounds like this one's going to be just damn over the top. So It's my pleasure, man. It's it's uh it's one of the first opportunities that I've had to create a facility where from day one, the entire team was on board with the same goal and the same vision. Um, from day one, they've done everything that they needed to write, including delaying the project originally. Um, and then secondarily to make sure that they had the budget to do what they wanted to do. They're not cutting any corners. They're really, they've, they've given me um, a beautiful level of control and influence uh, and friendship with them and trust where they've just given us the ability to really, you know, shape this place into what we believe it needs to be, not what the book dictated it could be, or the, you know, the person that doesn't even grow says he wants it to be, which is such a common factor that we deal with. And they really gave us, gave us the reins here. Um, and we're going to have a great grower in place there. I think it's going to be a really, really standout facility when it's all ready. So hopefully, you know, turn to next year, we should have a really cool grow, but hopefully I'll be back on before then with you guys anyways. There you go. And and is it in New England or? Yes, it is. It's Massachusetts. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right, Ken, uh, why don't you take it away and we'll wrap this up if you had any announcements or? Uh, just uh, Wednesday's show with uh, with Andy. Thursday's show, I know they were talking about uh, reaching out to, um, oh, geez, we were talking about him earlier. Um, does uh, Chris Trump. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for Thursday, possibly. I haven't got a response back from uh, either Luna or Alex on that, but hopefully Chris Trump's going to be coming up this week on Thursday. And definitely we're going to have to have Ben on uh, sharing more of what he's doing. Be my pleasure. Absolutely. Anytime. You guys got my number. You just tell me the dates. I'm always there for you. It's always an honor and a pleasure and just a joy to get to speak with you guys. I love it. I couldn't tell you. Best day I've spent in a long time on a Monday night. <laughs> I, I mean hold on you just got engaged so wasn't that the wasn't best on a monday. I mean, it wasn't a monday technically uh, technically we got engaged actually back in april um i proposed to her in jamaica on a river that uh we were with a bunch of friends that are from there with a bunch of our local friends and it was our seventh anniversary it was supposed to be when we got engaged ended up being the day after because our anniversary fell on easter and no one would work and i somehow that's <laughs> the cracks of a year of planning but uh, it worked out really well. And then we just had our engagement party, got all the family together and everything uh, this past week. Cool. Well, stick around, Ben. We're going to end the show, guys. And uh, we'll see you on Wednesday with uh, myself and Andy. Always a pleasure. Love seeing you guys.